Hi, everyone. It's Libby Kelly. I'm so excited to bring you the second Wonder Podcast and have you join my conversation with Rebecca Fallon. There is so much of value here and so many takeaways, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Rebecca is a clinical and health psychologist at the Sotil Center for Resilience. And if you want to reach her personally or get her information, she is at www.sotil.com. That's S-O-T-I-L-E.com. Rebecca is a therapist. She has a coaching practice. She's a published author, engaging speaker. She focuses on the unique challenges of high achievers, such as burnout, the myth of the balanced life, and has a focus on resilience. In her keynotes and seminars and workshops, she teaches successful people how to thrive in their careers and have fulfilling personal lives. I am so excited for you to hear our conversation. So here we go. Well, Rebecca, I am so happy to have you join us. The night you spent with us when you came to our Wonder Women group was one of the best nights we have had. And I'm just so happy to welcome you back. Well, thank you. It is an honor. I'm so happy you're doing a podcast. I think we need as much Libby Kelly as we can get. So I love it. <laughs> so sweet of you. Um, first of all, I want you to just describe for us kind of your your coaching practice. Sure. So I am a clinical psychologist by training. Um, I'm also a, a health and wellness coach. And so in my private coaching practice, I do what I usually referred to as resilience coaching. Um, and so my clients, our practice in general has sort of developed a niche in working with physicians and people who work in healthcare. So that makes up probably 80% of my practice. And then over the years, I actually have also gained some exposure in the world of entrepreneurs. And so several of my clients are um, business owners, um, what I would typically call kind of high-powered people. I, I sort of hate that term, but and it's certainly not a requirement to be that. I also have um, some college kids. I have some um, people who are completing their medical training. They're in residency right now. Um, but you know, everybody, I think, is living these busy lives and kind of striving for how to be more resilient, both at work and at home. Well, our group definitely meets the busy type A descriptors and so we are so excited to have your perspective. I'm going to dive right in here and start with the discussion of, of stress that we're all kind of going through. And, and I'm not really talking about kind of the major kind of stress related to, you know, illness, death, disease, or even extreme fear, but just this baseline stress that we all have during quarantine and these times. And wanted to share kind of an embarrassing parent moment from yesterday to kind of paint the picture of where I am. Oh, I was in my kitchen actually working ironically on these questions for you. And I had actually written down extreme irritability. <laughs> <laughs> and um, with that, my three of my littlest kids, nine ages nine, seven, and seven came in with this idea of buying a bunny cage that was like triple the size of an of a bathtub. Mm -hmm. But to be clear, what really got me was the incessant whining, of course, that came with this request. And I quickly spiraled into a raised voice and a rant about how it's expensive and that's absurd. And then I chased them up the stairs. They scattered like, 
you know, ants that I'd sprayed with 409. And I ranted at one of them that was now under the covers, um, my seven, one of my seven-year-olds, about doesn't he understand how that thing is absurd? It's, um, you know, the size of a walk-in closet. The next hour is me having to kind of make pancakes and read books on the couch instead of do my Peloton because I felt so guilty. <laughs> Guilt, yeah. And that, you know, and so that's just, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, I, I, you're, you've written about this high demand, low control um, phenomenon. And I'd love to hear, you know, your thoughts on irritability and other other feelings people are having as well as this high demand low control phenomenon. Yeah. So I mean I think that's such a relatable story um for all parents. Uh I had a similar moment this morning so that makes me feel a little better. Um but yeah, I mean so I talk a lot about what we call high demand low control stress. And high demand low control stress exists you know, without a global pandemic, it happens every day. It is typically the most distressing kind of stress to have. So situations that are very demanding of us emotionally, kind of draining, or they require a lot of attention. And yet we feel a low sense of control over what's going on. So parenting very often feels this way. I think particularly as kids get older and get more independent, um, dealing with a chronic illness is a good example of high demand, low control stress. Dealing with a relationship, a toxic relationship, for example, um, with an addict or somebody like that, it's very demanding and very low sense of control. So sometimes our work feels this way. I mean, it applies to everything. Right now, with the COVID situation, it is an extreme example of high demand, low control stress. And really, what happens is we get far more distressed when we ruminate about all the factors we are not in control of. And What's so hard right now is there's so many things we're not in control of, not just about this disease. And, you know, we think we learn, okay, wash your hands. Okay. That makes me feel more in control. It's something I can do, but really we don't know. There's no precedent for this. We, and that's why we all feel so out of control. On top of that, we have very little control over where we go and what we spend our time doing. That is so limited in a way that we've never experienced before. And so I think now more than ever, people are experiencing emotional, you know, I call it emotional lability. It's just being up and down. Um, And literally, I feel like that day to day, sometimes hour to hour, I have these moments where I'm like, gosh, I'm so grateful. We're so healthy. We have, you know, a home with a neighborhood where we can go walk around. You know, so many people are sick and, you know, there's these moments of gratitude. And then literally... 15 seconds later, I could be, oh my God, my kids are not learning anything. We're never going to get out of here. You know, what's going to happen? I mean, there's just no, there's no telling. And so I think to your point, irritability is at an all time high. It's kind of like we're all in a pressure cooker Mm -hmm. and can't get out, literally can't get out. So now more than ever, it's important to focus on controllable factors to manage stress. There are things when we get stressed, we we tend to become a little narcissistic in terms of, you know, this is my stress and therefore everyone around me should be better in order to reduce my stress. And actually owning control really means looking inward and saying, okay, what can I do? Let me pay attention. I feel my heart racing. I feel my blood pressure rising. That is my responsibility to manage. So I'm going to take 10 deep breaths 
before I respond to this child, or mm-hmm. I'm going to tell my husband, I got to go for a walk. I mean, mm-hmm. I swear since quarantine, I, I would love to know how many miles I've walked simply because <laughs> I've got to go. I'm sorry. I just have uh-huh. to go. <laughs> Even if it's 10 minutes, I got to go. Yes. Or I got to go upstairs, you know, um, for a few minutes. It doesn't mean I've got to leave and burn this house down, but I exactly. do have to get out of here for get a minute. Out of here. And you know, that that brings up your, and, and, and just to say that the word lability is that, that really hits the nail on the head. It, that, that's what it is. It's mm-hmm. this emotional lability. Your discussion of needing to go for a walk. Um, you know, I love circumstances where I read something and this happened to me when I read something that you have recently written. It's on your y'all's website where I read something and it is explained to me and it sort of perfectly untangles these complicated feelings that I've had, but I have been unable to understand it or put words to it myself. So this is precisely how I felt when I read your description of the need for disconnection. And now you're just saying you needed to go on a walk. I have to go on a walk by myself or, or whatnot. Will you explain that that need for disconnection? Yeah. So I think this is really important right now. This is a, a general concept actually that pertains to marriage or partnership. A lot of times with couples in couples counseling, they will express concern about the fact that they don't know how to connect with each other in a loving way. And what we find is actually true more often is one of the big relationship issues is that couples or partners don't really know how to effectively and lovingly disconnect from each other. So it's a very natural thing to crave disconnection, even from the people you love most in the world. But for some reason, we, I think, particularly women, make ourselves feel guilty about that need. And so we just stay. We just stay in it until we boil over and scream at everyone or pick a fight with our partner or whatever it is. And because you know what that's doing is it is naturally going to create some disconnection. Because what happens? The kids scatter like ants. Or your husband goes fine and goes upstairs. So you got your disconnection. But perhaps there is a different way to go about that. And um, I think it's really helpful to think about, you know, if you think of um, maybe older couples that you know, you know, maybe it was your grandparents or something like that, who, who really do have happy marriages. One thing they often are very good at is being able to say to each other, I'm kind of tired of you <laughs> right now, or, you know, in a loving way. And neither one personalizes it because there's so much loving connection at other times that they are secure enough to say, I'm going to go for a walk and I actually don't want you to come with me. Or mm-hmm. I'm going to go in here and read the paper and have my, my moment of quiet, um, mm-hmm. which is code for, you know, please leave me alone. Mm-hmm. And they understand that's an okay need to have. And they honor that for each other without taking it personally. And how wonderful to think that that they don't take it personally. And I think that, that that's something that it's just, we all need to learn. Young, the younger couples need to learn that. Yeah. I, I heard a quote of Winston Churchill recently that he said, the key to a happy, happy marriage is you don't see your spouse before noon. <laughs> I thought, that's <laughs> oh, great. Wow. I love that. I love that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Noon. He was a smart guy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank, that's, that's interesting. I really want to um, work on expressing that I, you know, I'm going to go on a walk by myself and not, it doesn't need to be a, I have to go be by myself. It's a, us learning together that those times are necessary and that we're not getting them, Mm -hmm. you know, nearly 
like we were when pre-COVID times. Yeah. And I think too, just along those lines, another important thing is to be proactive about creating that permission for each other so that nobody has to ask for it. You know, Mm -hmm. my husband very often will come home and see that I'm kind of wits end and he'll say, why don't you go for a walk? (laughs) Or why don't you go upstairs? And I'm like, okay. So I didn't even have to ask. Right. And we do that for each other. I'll I'll say, why don't you go get your workout done? Um, And then I'll hold down the fort. Now, the other thing I will say, and this is something I'm seeing with clients a lot right now is we are also craving disconnection from our children Mm -hmm. uh, because that eight hours that they used to be at school is not happening. And that's harder, I think, depending mm-hmm. on the age of your kids, because they kids don't necessarily understand why you would need that. I mean, my kids are 10 and 7. Um, my 7-year-old son is, I'm going to say, the most talkative person on planet Earth. And he doesn't understand why I wouldn't want to hear all the thoughts in his head at every hour. <laughs> and so for me to say, you know, I need some quiet time or whatever, sometimes kids personalize that. And and my kids throughout quarantine have said, you just don't like us. And we have to have conversations about that's not true at all. Mm -hmm. This has not, you know, we love you, but we all need our space. And, and I think in those moments where immediately I feel that mom guilt, what I also say to myself is, and you are, you are modeling mental health for them. You are modeling for them that sometimes we all need to just breathe and go for walks alone or have some quiet time in our room. I need that. You need that. And we're all allowed to ask for that. Yeah. What a wonderful example to, to set and, and how true that is. I, I have definitely felt, um, you know, at least we can now show them what, you know, parents need to do. And maybe they'll do that for themselves in yeah. the future as they grow. We all have these these emotional buckets, I, I think that we are supposed to have these buckets of empathy and willpower and patience. And by 4 p.m., all my buckets are completely dry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a fender bender two nights ago and it was not my fault. Oh. I've had wrecks that were my fault. This was, I, st- I was stopped at a stoplight and somebody hit me from behind and she came out swinging, like figuratively swinging um, about how I stopped too fast and it was my fault. And, you know, just absurd. And I started crying 10 o'clock at night, you know, thinking about going back over this. I start crying based on the fact that she had hurt my feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I, it's, it's like, I feel less emotionally intelligent during these times. Like, I feel like I sort of have the response of maybe a, that was maybe the response of a 16 year old new driver, not really the response of someone like me who is an adult with kind of, you know, a job and kids and family and whatever. Um, But, you know, I, I thought about that when you describe this, this exhausted sympathetic nervous system of mm-hmm. ours. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I love your discussion of this sort of stress response from yeah. that side of things. Well, I mean, you hit it on the nail on the head when you said you felt less emotionally intelligent because the truth is stress makes us rude and dumb usually and <laughs> less patient and just less in control of ourselves. It really does. And particularly for, you know, I know a lot of your listeners are probably what we would call type A people, right? They're busy, they're high achieving, they have high standards for themselves. Um, 
type A people in particular tend to have overactive sympathetic nervous systems, meaning their their brain is always going. I mean, it's always, okay, what next? What next? What did I, what do I got to do? 12 things at a time, blah, blah, blah. So, and if you think about what happens to, when you experience stress, what happens to our bodies and our brains is a big old response. We have a mental and a physiological response to stress. What it looks like, if we can picture a climbing stock market graph, that's kind of what we look like throughout a day, right? So it's one thing after another, after another. If we are not intentional, particularly us type A people, we have to be intentional about inserting pauses and moments of parasympathetic response. Some people are good at this. People who tend to just handle stress well, they tend to be way more laid back, even keeled. They kind of naturally float into those moments. For those of us who don't do that as naturally, we have to be very conscious of doing it so that that climbing stock market graph ends up looking more like, you know, ocean waves going up and down throughout the day. That's a much healthier kind of stress graph to try to create. So Mm -hmm. I think a really good concept in terms going back to let's try to focus on the stuff we can control. We can practice self-regulation, which is a big component of emotional intelligence. Self-regulation means I'm aware of my stress and how I act and what I do when I'm stressed, and I can learn to regulate that and catch myself. Before I get into that red zone, I'm going to say, I'm going to take 10 deep breaths before I hit send on this email mm-hmm. or before I get out of this car to confront this woman. <laughs> or, you know, I, I tell people, think about the transition periods throughout your day before mm-hmm. you answer that phone call or make that phone call. Um, when you pull into your garage at night, before you walk into your house, even though, of course, you're happy to be home, you want to see your family, but, you know, transitioning from work to a home full of screaming kids is like jumping into cold water, you know, take 10 deep breaths and kind of create that dip in your graph and then go in. For physicians, I talk a lot about this. Like I I have a a couple of surgeons right now and we talk about 10 deep breaths before you walk into the OR. 10 deep breaths during a case. If you start to feel things are going south, I need a reset button. 10 deep breaths before you walk into that patient room because you just know looking at the chart, this is a doozy. This is my least favorite kind of patient to deal with. Um, you know, so it's things like that, just being aware throughout the day, you're constantly kind of checking in with yourself. Now, if you can get a bigger pause, such as a walk, a 10 minute walk, that's great. Um, but sometimes we don't even have time for 10 deep breaths. It's three deep breaths or it's a quick mm-hmm. prayer or whatever mm-hmm. it is that makes you feel kind of centered. That sort of reset. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. I love your description of when you reach for your phone, when your eyes pop open in the morning and you spend the first five minutes on the on your phone. Mm-hmm. I love your description of that. If you would mind giving yeah. that to us. <laughs> well, this is something that... Um, Okay, so I'm a big proponent of meditation in general, particularly for type A people like myself who were very skeptical of meditation for a long time because I thought I am I am very busy and important, and so therefore I'm not I don't have time to do that. Um, And truly, we are the people who should be doing it more. But a lot of times with clients, there's a lot of resistance to that. And I think a good strategy if you're not going to meditate and, and you know, seek out a chunk of time to do that, fine. Let's just talk about curating the first five minutes of your day. Um, What does that look like? For most people, the alarm goes off, 
our, our brain immediately goes, oh crap, what? Okay, I got to get up. What do I have to do? What are, what's going on today? What, what am I worried about? It just starts. We pick up our phone and it is like an onslaught. It's an onslaught of overstimulation, of information, particularly right now. We're so polarized. There is nothing wonderful you're going to see in those first five minutes. Um, So I use the analogy of it's if that's the way you wake up and that's the way you start your day. It's literally like going downstairs, opening your front door and inviting in every news pundit, every idiot on Facebook, every person who is sending you emails. And saying, okay, everybody come come in and y'all all start talking at the same time. <laughs> that is how I would yeah. like to begin this day. Um, it is just a nightmare. And we've yeah. become so automatic in doing that. So I think encouraging people to think about for the first five minutes, can you not do that? Can you, like even before you get out of bed, take three breaths and think of three things you're thankful for. Or say, set an intention for the day. Here's what I hope happens today. Why not hope for the best outcome instead of catastrophizing the worst outcome? Mm -hmm. Or drink a big glass of water while you look out the window and then go get your phone. You know, Mm -hmm. so it is literally just creating a tiny little moment before you jump into the onslaught. And I, I love I love that recommendation. I think it's one of those things. It's one thing to tell your tell yourself, I'm I'm going to start meditating, or I'm going to deep breathe deeply throughout the day. But to have a plan, a small plan of just the first five minutes of your day, you yeah. know, reclaim it for yourself. Absolutely, is a, a wonderful recommendation. One thing I haven't heard anywhere else is then from you is this idea of a family health expert. And um, I love that concept and would love to hear you explain, explain that to us. Yeah. So most of us within our families, there's somebody who is the quote family health expert, meaning the person who kind of has their finger on the pulse of what is going on inside the home. Um, so what's interesting is that, again, I said a lot of my clients are physicians in marriages where there's one physician and one non-physician, most often the physician is not the family health expert, which is interesting. You know, then perhaps they have a spouse who stays home, but a lot of times they have a spouse who does something else outside the home. But um, that person really is the one who makes the calls about what is going on inside the home. Do the kids need to go to the doctor or not? Do we need to have a conversation with a teacher or not? what are we, you know, how are we going to handle, I mean, particularly since COVID, this has become a big issue because when we were all quarantined, what was happening was that all these people who have worked outside the home for the last 10, 15, 20 years are now inside the home. And it makes a lot of sense to be deferential to whoever has actually been home more and really understands how things go within the home. So I mentioned a lot of my clients are kind of high-powered people. One of the tendencies of high-powered people is we think we have great ideas. And so we want to swoop in and decide how things should go. Um, And that doesn't work well when you're talking about someone who has been working outside the home and is now coming in trying to run the show inside the home. A lot of the spouses who have either stayed home for the last 10 or 15 years or maybe just been more involved with kids, pets, whatever, keeping up the house, they're going to be really resentful if you come in 
trying to sort of run the show. So mm-hmm. a good concept, I think, for people to keep in mind is it's typically not a great idea to swoop in with a lot of authority in a realm where you haven't had a lot of responsibility recently. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot of sense to be a little more deferential to that family health expert. Doesn't mean you don't have an opinion. Doesn't mean you don't have ideas, but you really do say, you know, you're kind of the expert in this area. What do you think? How do you think mm-hmm. we should quarantine? Who are we? How are, is our family going to navigate this? Um, how do you want to do meals, you know, during the day while we're homeschooling, just stuff like that, mm-hmm. that none of us have had to figure out before. Right. And it certainly can come across as being um, critical of the way things have always been done around here. I have this brand new idea and yes. you've been doing it wrong for 10 years. And here's my, you know, here's right. my new idea. And <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, one thing that we have a lot of right now is this you know, endless, unstructured time for our families. And to quote you, uh, which I loved, was that this is vastly overrated. And, you know, I, I think that we have, there's so much pressure to feel that we are with our families so much and board games, who's playing this game or that game and what books have people read or all these, you know, what various things I think, you know, folks are sharing with each other. and. I love your thoughts on that, you know, the difficulty around unstructured time. I mean, it is, it, it is, it is a thing. It is not just a, a, every day is not a vacation. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think that is important to really have some compassion for ourselves about right now. I think when this thing started, the first week, maybe, I think we all kind of had that hurricane party mentality, like, mm-hmm. all right, let's just get all cozied up and like play some games and watch some movies. And <laughs> I mean, I would, the, the yeah. color coded homeschool charts were coming out. I mean, there was just a lot of optimism. And the truth is we, as adults in general, we really do overestimate how much we're going to love having unstructured time with the people that we love. Mm-hmm. Um, This is why a lot of times people retire and six months later go back to work because it's like, oh yeah, no, thank you. Yeah. It's not because they don't, we don't like our families. It's because number one, we like to feel productive. Most of us do better with structure ultimately. Um, But also it goes back to that concept of needing disconnection. So, you know, think about you go on a trip with your, your, your family, you have all these optimistic thoughts about how this is going to be and so much fun. And the truth is by day three, Everybody kind of wants to kill each other and it's not, everybody's whining and this is just not what I thought. Well, Mm -hmm. that's not because your family's doing this wrong. It's because Mm -hmm. we overestimate how great things are going to be. Um, We need to make it okay to say, this isn't going to be fun the whole time, you know, Mm -hmm. because we're humans and none of us are perfect people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's, again, it goes back to giving permission for Number one, giving permission to have all the feelings that you have about this. There will be days that you love it. There will be days where you think it's the worst thing ever. Both of those things are okay and can exist at exactly the same time. There is also permission to have space. And going back to the idea that unstructured time typically isn't that fulfilling, let's try to create some type of structure that feels good. So 
you know, it's that it's the same thing that happens if you sit and watch Netflix for eight hours. At the end of that, you really don't feel great, as great as you would if you had played outside for eight hours, you know, with your family or your friends. So we've got to find some middle ground there. Typically, Mm -hmm. what we know when we talk about leisure time, active leisure does a lot more for our well-being, our psychological health than passive leisure. So active leisure leisure is the board games or it's playing outside. Um, Passive leisure is I'm just going to sit and something entertains me meaning the television typically, or I'm going to look at my phone or look at social media. That's all passive leisure. Um, So yeah, you know, I think creating some type of structure, especially during times like this is helpful. I think during those first couple of weeks, we didn't really know what to expect. And so it Mm -hmm. seemed, well, maybe this is a short thing that can be fun. And then what I started seeing with clients particularly was like around week five, Mm -hmm everybody's like, uh, yeah, we've hit a wall and (laughs) it is not going well. Mm -hmm. Um, because we just, we didn't have structure and we weren't disconnecting. We were all just kind of in the pressure cooker wondering why we were so irritated. Mm -hmm. Yes. I had printed out two quotes that, that kind of hit the nail on the head for me. One was from one is how I felt in March, which you kind of described the hurricane party mentality. And then the other is kind of how I, how I am now feeling in May. So the first one is from, and I'd wanted to share with you and everyone. So the first one is, this was, um, who said this was Rebecca Solnit, who's a columnist for The Guardian. And it was said on a Krista Tippett podcast, who I adore, from 2016. Okay, so what she says, she's actually speaking about the San Francisco earthquake of 1989 versus Katrina and how it compared to Katrina. She wasn't even talking about COVID, but she says, um, and it, it, what to me it brought up was my comparison of, of this experience with 9-11, which mm. given my age, that's really kind of the only thing I have, you know, on the same sort of level mm-hmm. um, to the compare this, this experience to. She says, I'll start. There's a way a disaster throws people into the present and gives them this super saturated immediacy that also includes a deep sense of connection. It's that it's as though in some violent gift you've been given a kind of spiritual awakening where you're close to mortality in a way that makes you feel more alive. You're deeply in the present and can let go of past and future and your personal narrative in some ways. You have shared an experience with everyone around you. And you often find very direct, but also metaphysical senses of connection to the people you suddenly have something in common with. That was like, yes, this super saturated immediacy we are given in that times of crisis. And I'm not trying to make, you know, this crisis and death and disease into something, I mean, all wonderful. I mean, but it's a, it's kind of a, it's an and, as you know, Nancy Collier would have said, you know, it's all about the positive and the negative together, you know, and you mentioned the same thing. It's an and, you know, this super saturated immediacy. I love that term of, of a crisis. And that's, there was that element of March. And then May is from a a blog. This is actually Nancy Nancy Collier's blog post from uh, just this week. And the title, to echo what you just said about your clients and how they're feeling, is is hitting the pandemic wall. Mm -hmm. And what she's talking about is that we've moved past the novelty and fascination with this pandemic. And there's nothing novel about this novel coronavirus. And here, the quote is this. But the real challenges arise when the hardship 
has been around for a while when it has ceased to be new, obviously meaningful or interesting. Interesting. When hardship becomes the norm, the spiritual warrior in us must awaken. Here in the long hallway before the exit door has come into view is when our real warrior self is not just wanted, but needed. This really struck me because I thought, you know, the novelty is over. We're still in this lull of uncertainty. And I, I'm finding this time is, is continuing to be almost as taxing and draining as it had been. And maybe it's because the, the adrenaline rush is over. And yeah. we don't have a, re- a reserve to pull from. There's nothing kind of like, you know, get the, all the troops together. We can do this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I mean, yeah. Now the hurricane has now been, you know, a 10 mm-hmm. week long hurricane or whatever. It's a <laughs> right. long this, hurricane. Is, this is day 72. <laughs> no. This is 72. Uh, Not that anybody's found. Oh my yeah. God. But yeah. I think too, I mean, I love those two quotes because that first one, I think, really speaks to what we so often, particularly as women and mothers, get set up for, which is, um, this should feel great, and you should love these moments. And if you don't, there's something wrong with the way Mm. you're doing it. And that's just such a toxic, dangerous message that we get over and over again, not just during a pandemic, but always, particularly about motherhood. And so inherent in that is that we're going to feel guilty and we're going to get the shame spiral going because that inner voice, I think that we all have very often says, yeah, we're doing this wrong because it's not, this doesn't look like Pinterest uh, stuff. I mean, and (laughs) we're not doing all the games everyone else is doing and we're not doing the crafts and why are my kids fighting? And, mm-hmm. and we just feel, and that's so isolating, I think. And what's hard is to have that type of shame and isolation internally happening when we are also physically isolated mm-hmm. from the supportive resources that would maybe normalize some of that for us. You know, you would mm-hmm. talk to your girlfriends and have wine and everybody would say, oh, no, no, we, we did the same thing. And you yes, would say, okay. Right. Yes. Um, so that I think is really a key thing that's happening, particularly for women and mothers right now, is we mm-hmm. expected to feel like, you know, domestic goddesses during this thing. And it's just <laughs> that ain't happening <laughs> for a lot of us. <laughs> um, you know, I love, you know, you're bringing up again, this discussion of guilt and the, and, and self-compassion. I, I think of those almost as two ends of a spectrum and, I could wave a, a magic wand and I, you know, I'm speaking about, my, I have three daughters and two sons and, and maybe I should think of them all the same, but if I could wave it over my daughters, it would be to replace guilt, oh. needless guilt and give that, replace it with self-compassion. Yeah. And then I have to step back and think, okay, well, if I want that for my daughters, why don't I want that for myself? And how, what, do you recommend on this letting go of guilt when it seems to follow some of us kind of everywhere? God. Yeah. Um, You know, I think when you say that, I think immediately about something my therapist told me, which therapists do have therapists, by the way, I I think everyone should have a therapist. (laughs) Um, But we were talking about my daughter, Macy, and I said essentially what you just said. If, if anything, I, I wish I could make her be, be careful with herself and love herself and forgive herself and all this 
stuff. And her question to me was, where is she supposed to learn that if not from you? You know? Wow. And wow. Self-compassion is something I've always struggled with. I mean, I'm a, I'm very good at self-criticism. And what's interesting is that the research will tell you self-compassion, what we think is the more self-critical we get, the more successful and resilient we will be because we'll just push, push, push. The opposite is true, actually. The people who are Mm -hmm. most resilient over the long term and have the most success are the ones who are able to be compassionate, particularly when they fail, when things go Mm -hmm. poorly. Interesting. Um, And there is actually a lot of research that we socialize girls and boys differently in a way that boys have a more, a, a healthier relationship with things like failure in a way that promotes their resilience, whereas girls get more demoralized by failure and, mm. and personalize it. So that starts very early. And so I think mm. um, undoing that takes some effort and some work. Um, for me, therapy is helpful. Uh, I really think meditation is helpful for that simply because when you quiet your your monkey brain and you calm your mind and you just learn how to breathe, mm-hmm. what you realize is that your your mind does a lot of really unnecessary gymnastics for a huge part of the day. Mm-hmm. And what that gymnastics is very often is stories that you tell yourself about yourself. Mm-hmm. And one of the most profound things for me has been learning how to challenge those stories and to really say, wait, what if that's not true at all about me mm-hmm. or about what this person thinks of me? It's literally a story and I can choose to tell a different story. Mm-hmm. That is within my control. So when you're able to do that, you're able to then be more forgiving with yourself. You're able to not personalize things. And what happens when you do that is you're also able to extend more compassion to those around you. I mean, we know people who are more compassionate with themselves are more compassionate with the people that they love. And the, the opposite is also true. Mm-hmm. So I think for a lot of women, it's hard to um, think about prioritizing self-compassion. But if we think about the fact that it will benefit our children, then we're all in. Or if we think about the fact that, well, this could make my marriage better, or it could make me actually a more successful person, you know, then we can yes. see right. the direct benefits of it. Oh, I love that. Yes. Oh, that's really inspiring to think, okay, this is, this is the reason to do it. This is. Yeah. And it's amazing because even if you're educated about it and smart, you think you're, you think you're doing it because, and, and this occurred to me also in therapy. Um, when I started seeing my therapist, she's, I don't know, she's probably 10 or 15 years older than me. And I just think she's very wise and at the end of our sessions, sometimes she would just kind of look at me and go, good job, sweetie. And it would make me want to burst into tears because, and at first I was like, oh my God, why do I want to cry when you say that? And I realized it's because I never say that to myself. No, I never wow. say good job, sweetie. Yeah. I just say, okay, what's next? We got to go, yeah. got to go. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Keep going. Wow. Yes. So important to say to yourself. Yeah. So you are, many of us in this group, we speak Enneagram and as almost a second language, uh, how for you, how has being a one affected you 
<laughs> you speak a little bit like a one. I don't think I'm supposed to say that, but I know you're a one. <laughs> I'm a one. You told me you're oh, a one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm a one. Um, and I am by no means an Enneagram expert, but I think it is fascinating. I am not either. Yeah, but I love it. I love mm-hmm. it. And I think it's so accurate. <laughs> it's just, mm-hmm. um, yes, I'm a one. And so as a one, um, great at self-criticism, um, which translates often into also judging others, which I didn't think I was judgmental of others. Like I don't consider myself to be that way in a superficial way, you know, like, Mm -hmm. but I will very much judge. uh, And this is another thing that has emerged for a lot of people. I think during COVID we are judging the way each other is quarantining or not quarantining. And um, why are you doing that that way? And why are you not more worried about X, Y, and Z? What does that mean? You know, judgment really involves also personalizing. What does that mean about you as a person and what you value? And right now in our country, we will make assumptions about that all day long. You know, why did you post that on Facebook? What does that mean you really value in your life Uh, or whatever? So Mm -hmm. I think judgment is sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum from compassion um, for me. And so that is why the more compassionate I can be with myself, the more aware I am when I am judging and the more quickly I can switch that judgment to compassion. So here's a really simple example. Driving around my neighborhood, there are kids who are playing with other kids every day. Mm. Our family has chosen to not do that, at least until we know more about what's going on. And, mm-hmm. and so I, my immediate reaction is, oh my God, your parents are idiots, right? Mm-hmm. And then my compassionate reaction is, you know, what I know about your parents is that your dad typically travels five nights a week and is now at home. And I don't know what it's like in your house right now. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how comfortable that is or uncomfortable. Um, maybe the safest place for you is outside, or maybe your mom is so overwhelmed by the fact that her husband is now home all the time that she needs mm-hmm. you out of the house and she, it feels like a, man- a manageable risk for y'all. Mm. And so that brings me to much, a much better place of just, you know, wishing well to people as it, cause the alternative is to just feel angry or all the time. And all that does is affect me. <laughs> yes. I love that, that shift. It's just a, a shift in looking at it from a different, different perspective. Yeah. Because the truth is, as a therapist, I, you never, ever know what is going on inside a home, inside a marriage. You think you do. I don't care if you're, they're your best friends on earth. You, you have no idea. Mm. And so to just extend compassion feels much better to me than judging. Judging, judgment. Mm-hmm. Oh, beautiful. So beautiful. Gosh, we all need to do that. Okay, I've got, I've got let's see, one last thing for you. Actually, two last things for you. I take that back. One of them I thought was just interesting that I wanted to share. And this is from, this is this concept that this is, again, this is Krista Tippett. I'm going to quote, this is her words and she's quoting someone else, but it's this concept of this time being this great uncovering. How it goes is that she says, it's true that um, in the original Greek, apocalypse does not mean the catastrophe. It actually means the uncovering 
she goes on to basically describe that this time is uncovering so many things for us, like good things like kindness and generosity, and then also more scary things like our physical fragility. And, you know, through this, I have I have thought about a lot of of things that it's uncovered for me. I know I'm taking for granted. I mean, I don't take my cleaning lady for granted usually, but it's I, I didn't realize how much I appreciated her and needed her. And I mean, I want to kiss her when it's been a long, long time since I've seen yeah. her. I don't really remember what she looks like. I can't wait to see her again. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the appreciation for things. I think that it's uncovering how we re- react to prolonged stress. It's it's uncovering for me uh, windows into my children as these little citizens in their classes. I have never witnessed them engaging with their teachers like this. It's uncovering things that we forgot we love to do. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'm wondering about you. Have, is this has this experience uncovered anything mm-hmm. in your life or or the lives of your your clients that you think is worth mentioning? <clears throat> um, yeah, you know, I think to me, uncovering. I used this analogy recently with a client because the truth is, it's there is in every relationship. There's stuff that is sort of swept under the rug, even in healthy relationships. It's like mm. let's just let that go. And what's happening now is there is no rug. It mm. it is just we are just here, and in some cases that has proven to be a wonderful thing. And in some cases that has resulted in people, I have two clients right now who have decided they're definitely getting divorced. Wow. <laughs> and so I, absolutely, there's, absolutely. There's going to be a spike in that. And, and I think for these, for most, most of the time, it's like, that was inevitable. This isn't causing that. Mm-hmm. But a lot of, I think a really great thing to keep in mind is, and we talked about this a little bit before, was this concept of post-traumatic growth, which is that a difficult time can actually, much more frequently actually than than post-traumatic stress, we see people have post-traumatic growth, which is throughout a difficult period, we rise to a higher level of functioning. And we become more thankful or we become more insightful or we become less attached to nonsense. Um, And I think that's something for families to keep in mind that that is actually very likely to happen if you let it and if you look for it. Um, I think for us, you know, kind of the same thing. We've noticed our kids, um, I think they as siblings are going to remember this as a time of closeness that sometimes was very tumultuous and sometimes was great. And we did Mm -hmm. a lot as a family, you know, bike rides and walks and whatever. Um, I think I've been very impressed with a level of resilience with my husband that I has actually surprised me. I knew he was a resilient person, but he is a much more kind of extroverted social person than me. And so this has been very hard for, for him from that point. And yet he has this incredibly positive energy. It's just kind of who he is. But mm-hmm. I think I had started to forget that or take that for granted in some way. And it's now like, wow, I'm glad you've got that. You know, you're yeah. kind of keeping us afloat a lot of the time. Uh-huh. Yes. And so it's just a new appreciation for stuff like that. And then an also, also all the stuff everyone talks about, which is, um, you know, maybe I don't have to have my house cleaned every 
week or every two weeks, or I don't need, I mean, I don't get, I'm pretty low maintenance, but I know a lot of people are like, I don't need a manicure every week. I don't have to have my eyelashes done all, you know, whatever it is, the silly things that we're realizing, oh, I could live without. For me, what I'm realizing is, wow, we are so addicted to busyness so unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. And there is so much that's another thing as a type one, I will say has been hard for me is being okay with stillness, not mm-hmm. just okay with stillness, but recognizing what benefit there is in stillness, um, not viewing that as laziness, but really understanding that is necessary and valuable, particularly at a time like this. Yes, that's just breathes energy back into you Absolutely. no matter no matter your enneagram no matter your yeah. gender no matter no matter your family situation yes that's something we had lost um the last thing i wanted to ask was what is there anything you think you'll take into this sort of the things you've grown to enjoy now and even if it's just not being as busy into into life post covid whenever it is that we get ourselves there. Yeah. Um, you know, I think definitely a new appreciation for our health, which I I always felt. Um, but I think on a deeper level, just really understanding the vulnerability, particularly, of you know, I still see my parents there in our kind of circle because we work together. So we've been seeing them the whole time, but to me, this all feels much more important in, from a health perspective because of that. Um, and just in, enormous gratitude for kind of my family unit because um, what's, interest, what's been interesting for me to see is how content I can be as long as I'm seeing and keeping in touch with a few key people. I'm, I'm kind of good, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I don't have to be in touch with everybody. But the flip side of that is some relationships, because everyone's Zooming now and doing FaceTime or whatever, I certainly have kept in better touch with some of those more distant people, which is hilarious. I'm like, why does this, why do we need a global pandemic to do this? Like Zoom with your high school friends every Friday, like I've been doing it. Yeah. I mean, and it's great. Incredible. Right. Right. So I think, you know, what I will take away is um, really, really appreciating, um, the relationships that are very important and understanding that sometimes we get so busy that we assume, well, they'll be there. You know, I I can kind of assume that they're going to be there and it would be beneficial to actually proactively connect a little bit better, Mm -hmm. create some stillness, understand being busy does not equals success. And sometimes that stillness allows connection in a way that's going to be much more beneficial for you. Oh, yes. Oh, I love that. I love that. Oh, well, thank you so much for, for, for talking. We, we covered a, a ton of ground. I can't tell you how much I appreciate having you and good luck as we all move forward in these these next weeks of, and hope you have a, a, a good summer. We'll see how this is going to go. I know. Well, thank you for doing this. I love it. I can't wait to hear all your episodes. I think That's great. so wonderful. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thanks, Libby. I'll see you soon. Okay, okay great. All right, bye.
Oh, so many wonderful things that Rebecca had to share with us. And I had this conversation a day ago, and the more I think about it, the better the better it's made me feel. If you are having emotional lability, if you're irritable, if you have a short temper, know that you are not alone. And you know, for me, if I just know that other people feel the same way, it just it doesn't resolve me of those emotions, but it just makes me feel normal. So know that you're normal. I love this idea of the need for disconnection from our partners during this time. And even as we gradually relax um, this isolation, we need to disconnect and we need not to personalize it. And same is true for our partners. I love that. If we don't have self-compassion for ourselves, where are our, our daughters going to learn it? And we have got to model it for them, if anything. And this concept that research shows that the most resilient, most successful people, however you define success, have actually the most self-compassion. And that if we have more compassion for others, for ourselves, then we actually have more for others. We talked about that in the last podcast. I love that. I love what she said about challenging ourselves with the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. So she said, challenge the stories you tell yourself about yourself. And I've thought about that and realized I, there are a lot of things I tell myself about myself that are not true. And if we can let go of those things, we can allow ourselves to be more forgiving and not personalize everything. Oh, I love this concept of replacing judgment with compassion. She said that so eloquently. And then this concept of post-traumatic growth that we're going to, after this, we can become less attached to nonsense and that this is more likely to happen if you just let it. So that is certainly a goal of mine is to become less attached to nonsense after this. Thank you so much to Rebecca for joining me. Thank you, Rebecca. And if you need to reach her or want to reach her, she is at www.sotile.com, S-O-T-I-L-E. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for supporting me. A special thanks to Russell Kelly for sound and music production. I really look forward to the next podcast, but really more importantly, I look forward to seeing many of you in person. Thank you for joining me. Bye. 